Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Reading from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraelites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and she said, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I'm going to ha- am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there were still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, And then gave birth to sons. Would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand is turned against me. The word of the Lord. Hey, thanks. had the opportunity to go out uh, to dinner recently uh, with a friend, Tim Rockwell. In fact, Tim and Christy. And uh, towards the end of the evening, Tim asked me the question, so Todd, how, how are you doing? And uh, those of you that have been following our saga over the last couple of years, it's been a tough time physically uh, for me and also for Lori. We've had some some pretty major events and and, uh, you know, Tim and, and Christy just want to know, how are you doing? And uh, for a long time, when people asked me how I was doing, I really didn't want to answer. I tried to avoid them because no one wants to hear, I'm really not doing that well. And, you know, a few months later, how are you doing? I'm really not doing that well. I'm still struggling. Things are hard. How are you doing? And, and you get to the place where you're just, you're just tired of talking to people about not feeling well or not doing well. 
Can anyone relate to that? All right? So when Tim asked me the question, how are you doing? It was like, I couldn't believe it. I said, great. I haven't felt this good in two years, right? Not only that, Lori's doing well. Uh, I mean, I, I just like, in fact, you know, I was just in the shower this morning and reaching up for the shampoo with this arm and thinking, wow, right? I mean, or putting on my sock, right? And it's like, it doesn't hurt. This is great. And what I find myself doing is looking at things in my daily life that that I come to take for granted. That now I really appreciate their big deals. In fact, I could take my sock off, throw it at Tyler, and put it back on. Yay. Right? I wouldn't have dared to do that a few months ago. So I got to tell uh, Tim and Christy, man, I'm doing great. And, uh, well, how, you know, how's your pain? I go, well, you know, there's always going to be pain at least for the things that are broken with me, but it's so manageable and it's so negligible compared to what it was. I am just fine. And you know, I thought about that, Tim and Christy, uh, how meaningful that was. Thank you for asking. This time I didn't have to avoid you. Uh, But I also thought about my response. You know, there's always some pain. And I thought about that just beyond the kind of the physical pain of the last couple of years and the challenges we faced. Um, the reality is in life, there's just this always pain of some kind. Uh, whether we're feeling that pain in, our, in ourselves, in our own life, in our bodies or our, our spirits, or we're holding pain for somebody else, or we look out into a world that, that's broken and there's such suffering and hardship for so many there's just, there's just pain. And uh, it's a part of all of our lives in, in, in one way or another. And uh, I don't know about you, but when you're going through those times or when you're really immersed in, in thought or your, your spirit is in that place where, where your heart is breaking for somebody that you love or you care for, or you're walking beside them and you're taking the journey with them, uh, in their pain and, and their hardship. Trite, cliche kinds of things don't really help, do they? You know, it's like the last thing I want is uh, a redhead child singing, the sun will come up tomorrow. I mean, I know it will, but during those times, it, it that news just doesn't seem to be enough. It just doesn't seem to be enough. And so it's so important for us as believers in God and and followers of Christ that we go to the word that is enough, that speaks honestly, unashamedly, to the brokenness of the human condition. 
That's the thing I appreciate about Scripture. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those who wrote, God had no design of, of trying to, to flower things up and make them look better than they really are. He's pretty honest. And we encounter that honesty. Sometimes it's really hard, but it's there in the pages of Scripture. But, but, but the reason it needs to be so honest is because there needs to be honesty about the hope and the good news that's there also. All right? And uh, when the days are the darkest, it's the, the little bit of light that, that, that shines uh, the brightest. I, I read something interesting recently, and I don't know if it's true. I'm just going to tell you what I read. I'll do research and let you know. I'm, but by the time this sermon's over, you'll probably do research. Someone will and say, Pastor Todd, I'll tell you whether it's true or not, right? That in, in total, complete darkness, where there's no ambient light, just a total absence of light, um, that the human eye is able to detect or see light that can be miles away. A little bit of light, miles away. In fact, this uh, article I read said 30 miles away. Wow. Wow. And I think about that in the context of God's word, and the light that's present there for us in our darkest, darkest days, that, that a little bit of light, just a little bit, catches our attention. And God's design is that it does because he wants to illuminate that darkness and those dark places in our life that we're struggling with. In fact, sometimes it's just a struggle to hope. Do you know that? Have you felt that in your life ever? Now, what do you call it when, when a word has two different meanings or an expression has two different meanings? It can mean this, but it also means that. So an English major here. What's that called? Thank you. Could you say it louder? A double entendre. Sounds very French or something to me. Thank you, Tim. Okay? And, and really, that's the name of the new sermon series that we're beginning today in the book of Ruth. It's called The Struggle to Hope. Because sometimes in life, it really is a struggle to hope, isn't it? It's a struggle to hope. But it's also a struggle to hope. Do you see that? That in the struggle, as a result of the struggle to hope, we find a greater hope that perhaps we'd overlooked or was unaware of. I know certainly in my life, uh, what I have found is a greater, deeper trust and hope in God. In fact, the longer I live and the more pain that, that I experience or that I enter into with those whom I love and care for or shepherd or the world in which I'm a part of, the less things around me offer hope. 
And the more I find hope in the only one who ultimately can be trusted to give us an everlasting hope. And that's God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the pages of Scripture are full of that hope. And the reason that hope is is so bright and so present in Scripture is because Scripture is so honest about brokenness and pain and trials and tribulation that we all experience and that are ongoing in each of our lives. Okay? So earlier this week, I was looking at Facebook. And I saw a posting from a ministry associate from 25 years ago. Here it is. I don't know where she got it from, but I read it. It says, sometimes you must hurt in order to know. Fall in order to grow. Lose in order to gain. Because most of life's greatest lessons are learned through pain. I don't know about you, but for me, I can attest to the truth of that. Um, I think um, the things that are the most Christ-like in my character, the things that that are, are, are strengths that that endure circumstances that are greater than the pain I, I experience in life or I see or I enter into around me. That's come to me by way of brokenness and hardship. And I'd like to tell you that it could come another way. And perhaps it does to some extent. But the deep, deep things of character, uh, the Christ-likeness at whatever level that's resonant in my life, um, that's joy hard won. But it's joy. Philip Yancey says this, I believe Christians walk a mental tightrope and are in constant danger of falling into two directions. On this subject, errors in thinking can have tragic results. The first error comes when we attribute all suffering to God, seeing it as punishment for human mistakes. That's the, something's gone wrong in my life, God must be punishing me for something. Right? There's a I'm like pig pen. There's a cloud over me. And it's all God's fault because I must have done something to deserve that. Right? Yancey says that, 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 that can be tragic. He says a second error does the exact opposite. Assuming that life with God will never include suffering. That, that somehow, because I'm a Christ follower, I, uh, I'm immune to pain and, and the suffering that, that's endemic in the broken and fallen world that we, we live with. Um, 
good people, Christ followers. endure suffering in their lives. But here's good news, friends. Christianity gives purpose to pain. Do you know that? Christianity gives purpose to pain. And in my faith, I only have to look to Jesus who knows, who's familiar with Pain and suffering. Emmanuel, God with us. God entered the brokenness of our human condition, of our sinful world. And in his humanity, experienced the pain and the suffering that are common to our lives. Now, in case you doubt that, he has the scars to prove it. He has the scars to prove it. And when he was asked by Thomas, right? Because Thomas was doubting. Well, let let me see the the scars. Let me see your side. What what does he do? Here it is. Here it is. Those are sacred scars. There's glory in those scars because through them he purchased us, he redeemed us. That we would have forgiveness of sin and in new life and eternal life. So that whenever we are bereft, or whether we're in pain, or we're struggling to understand that there is a greater glory that's before us. And in that glory is the knowledge that God has been at work, He is at work, and He will continue that work. And someday, the pain and the suffering, the sorrow, death and disease, and and all of it, All of it will be done away with. And there's glory in that. There's hope in that for us. But there's also another kind of glory. Authors of Scripture talk about it. Romans, Paul writes, Romans 5, 3 through 4. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings, Paul writes, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. We're going to see that progression in the book of Ruth. We're going to see how that works in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life. We'll see that. For us as followers of Jesus... We can glory in knowing that in these things we are being pressed and conformed more and more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. 
that there is a, a greater Christ-likeness that comes to those who surrender in this to God and let, allow God to produce in them the very character and nature of Christ. That's a theme here. It continues in James, James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking in anything. And in my experience, I translate that maturity to a place where I recognize that even in the midst of the hardest time in my life, ultimately, I know I have God and God's enough. That's joy, hard, one. Right? Or let's look at Peter. Three different authors... Three similar themes. In all this you greatly rejoice, Peter writes, though now for a little while you may have had suffering, had to suffer and all kinds of grief and all kinds of trials. These have come that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. And you know what? There is a glory that will be had in being found faithful to Him in this life. That we endured, that we persevered, that upon Christ's return, that we would be found faithful. There, there is a glory for us, but there's a greater glory for God. That in all these things, our lives testify. It's the proclamation that's followed by the demonstration of how we live that gives God glory. And we're going to find that theme in the book of Ruth. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Pain insists, he says, upon being attended to. In other words, we have to do something with it, don't we? Seems like the more we ignore it, the more insistent it becomes, huh? Huh? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I will testify that it is a megaphone that arouses a person's non-attentive soul. It just does. It gets our attention. Several years after Lewis wrote that, he wrote another book called A Grief Observed. Um, 
he wrote it after the death of his wife from bone cancer. Okay? So the first quote that I just read is the academic Lewis, the thoughtful Lewis, kind of reflecting externally on on pain and, and how it gets our attention and how God uses it and speaks to us in it if we allow him to. But years later, after having walked with his wife through death in a book called A Grief Observed. So the problem of pain, but now it's a grief observed. I'm going to tell you about what I experienced personally and observed. This is what he writes. Meanwhile, where is God? This is the one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him then with praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain and what do you find? Now listen to his heart here. The honesty of his experience. You find a door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. That's honest, isn't it? Maybe you're feeling like that today, or maybe you've felt like that. That's real. But in the end, he says this. In this same book, Grief Observed. He says, you never know how much you believe anything until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. You never know how much you believe it. The book of Ruth is a powerful book. It's a story. It's a narrative. And the central characters in the book, or two of the primary central characters, Naomi and Ruth are on a journey. And in that journey, there is a struggle to hope. But in that struggle, they find their way to hope. So it is literally a struggle to hope. And what they find is a faithfulness, a a greater depth of character and understanding of the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the providence of God, even when he can't be seen or understood. Even when we're at times in our life like C.S. Lewis in A Grief Observed, where he says you just might as well turn away. It's futile. Where's God when you need him? Right? Right? But what we're going to find in this story is a God who's faithful. A God, as Paul would write in Romans, who works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. And what we're going to find in this book as we read through it and study it together is that God works in the trials and the suffering and the hardship and the pain 
of its characters, of the people that are written about. To fulfill a promise that results in the history of our salvation. In a way that no one could have thought or imagined. It's amazing that we today can can stand and we can study this book and we can celebrate the hope, the struggle to hope, and the faithfulness of God. And the salvation, the, 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 the glory of hope as we look to the coming of our Savior and, 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 and His work completed and all things that are broken and wrong made right, we can celebrate that. We can, we can live in that hope because of the events that happen in this book, the book of Ruth. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. So my hope is, is that we go through this together, that we recapture in a new and a fresh way the faithfulness of God. And that even when we can't see him, we have hope to believe that he's at work in those difficult, in those dark moments, in those moments when we hunger and thirst and there's a famine in our spirit. One of the things I appreciate about about the book of Ruth is that there are two books in the Bible that bear the name of women. One is Esther, and the second is Ruth. But the thing, or one of the distinctives about the book of Ruth is, is that it gives a woman's perspective. A woman's perspective. Not that she wrote it, but the author wrote it in a way that really communicates the perspective of a woman amidst the trials and difficulties and struggles in life, the struggle to hope and to find God in the midst of all of it. So in that way, it's a uniquely female perspective on the topic. I I appreciate that, having been raised by a single mom, watching her struggles and her struggle to hope and her struggle to give me hope in some pretty tough times as a kid. So this book resonates with me. It helps me get in touch with my, quote, feminine self, right? Because I can see my mother's struggle in the pages of these books, but I can see God's faithfulness to her and to me as well. You see that? So I want to point out a few things in the 13 verses, just a few to kind of whet your appetite. We'll we'll talk about these more. But in the first 13 verses that were read today, I want to point out just a few things. If you open up your, your Bibles to Ruth, you're going to see that the book of Judges, verse or chapter 21, verse 25, ends with this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, or as we often say, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Judges was a time of spiritual, social, and political unrest for the Jewish people. And, and, and Ruth takes place during this period. Okay? And what's going on with the nation is mirrored in 
the experience of Naomi and Ruth as we meet them and become acquainted with them in the first chapter of the book. Okay? Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So there's a famine. And the famine is so severe that Elimelech, whose name means God is king, takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, and they go across the Dead Sea from Judah to a a country called Moab, where the Moabites are. Now, things must have been pretty bad for a godly man a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to abandon his homeland, his town of Bethlehem, which means what? Place of bread or food. So he leaves the place of bread or food in a famine to go to Moab, a place of his where there's great conflict. They are enemies, or had been historically enemies of of the Jewish people. And so he leaves the place or the house of bread or food in a famine to go to a place where his enemies historically had dwelt, or the enemies of his people. That's how bad it was. And uh, I'm reminded of how we sometimes do the same thing. You see, Jesus, who was born where? In Bethlehem, the house of bread, right? Well, he's the, what? Living bread. He's the one whose sustenance for our spirit and our soul. And, and there are sometimes when the famine of spirit in our lives becomes so great that that we look outside of the place of nourishment for our spirit and the one who can provide it, and we begin to go outside to other places that look more inviting because we're beginning to say, well, things are pretty desperate here. I don't know. Is God going to show up? Man, there's a pretty good offer out there, and there's a pretty good offer out there, and there's a pretty good offer out there, and sometimes we're just challenged to leave the place that we know is home in hopes that someone or someone else or somewhere else will find what we're looking for to meet our need. You ever do that? So this is what's happening here. They're going because it's a very real physical famine. But what they're going to find by by leaving that place, they're going to experience a, a spiritual famine, if you will. Because they're not there very long, and Elimelech dies. Well, Naomi has two sons. They marry two Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah, okay? Orpah, whose name means stubborn, and Ruth, whose name means friendship. And in the end, we're going to see here that friendship wins out over stubbornness. And so they marry, and they're there for about 10 years. But what happens? The two sons die. And so now you have Naomi and her two daughters-in-laws. No husbands. But I tell you, that's bad news during this time. 
And there's no immediate family, at least for Naomi, in the land of Moab. So they're pretty desperate. Well, here's what's going to happen. She hears that the famine is over in Judah. And she's going to return there. But here's something we're going to find. Three aspects of hope. Let me point them out to you real quick. In verse 8, it says, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So in other words, go back to your your homeland. You know, you, you stay in Moab and remarry. That's important for you as young women. You need that. You're going to have to have that to survive. And she's hoping for them. And she's talking about the Lord providing for them. And so in the midst of the struggle to her own hope, she's holding out hope for them. And that God will provide for them what they need. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had no hope for yourself, but somehow you muster up hope for other people? Hopefully God will do this for you, even though He's not going to do it for me. Ever been there? It can be very real, can it? I don't see any future for myself. It, it looks like this is the way it's going to be for me. But for you, may God bless you. I hold out hope for you. I'm a lost cause. There are people that feel that way. But as we keep reading, it says, Then she kissed, verse 9, them goodbye, and they wept out loud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. And you hear here that she had hope for them, but no hope for herself. Verse 11, But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I am going to have... Uh, am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? So that's a rhetorical question. Of course she's not. Don't come with me. It's not like I'm going to have sons that you could marry someday. Return home, my daughters. Verse 12. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought, listen, even if I thought there was still hope, she says, for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. Now here it is. No hope for herself. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That's a struggle to hope, isn't it? Verse 14. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And I hope that this gives you hope. Three times she tries to get her daughters-in-law to to, to, to leave and to go to their homeland and to stay there, having hope for them, 
but no hope for herself. But in the end, the one whose name means stubborn, Orpah, kisses her goodbye and leaves. So stubbornness doesn't prevail when there's hopelessness. But let me show you what does. Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Even when we have no hope for ourselves, hope clings to us. Because when we look and there's no God to hold on to or we think that he's, I can't, I can't find him. I can't hold on to him. Where is he? Hope clings to us. He holds on to us. And Ruth was the hope that held on to Naomi. God's hope. A woman whose name means friendship. And sometimes we just need friends. We need the community of faith. We need people around us to be instruments of God's hope. Holding on to us when we feel like we can't hold on to God. And what we're going to see as we move on in the story is the amazing way that through event after event, culminating to just a, a hopeful expression of God's sovereignty and purpose, we're going to see the struggle to hope result in a greater hope. It's a wonderful story. And so as the worship team comes up, I don't know where you are today, but if, if you're struggling to hope, I want you to know that hope is holding on to you. You may not feel it. You may not recognize it. You may not realize it. But God is faithful. It's Psalm 34. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. He'll never let go.